Amen. Good morning. I don't think I saw any visitors. I seem to know everybody, which is unusual because if you're the usual people here for years, I don't know you. (laughs) It's getting worse every day. You're getting less and less familiar. Well, today is Palm Sunday. And this is one of several theme Sundays that that we have throughout the year, and it calls specifically for a focused sermon. And of course, I've got to remind you of what Alistair Begg said. He said, I'm not here to tell you something you have never heard before, but to remind us all of what we must never forget. I'm not here to give you revelations. This is a Palm Sunday service sermon, and so it'll be familiar to you. And so I have a Palm Sunday sermon. And the title is Hail Jesus, Nail Jesus. My text is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 to 2, and verses 6 to 9. Also, Matthew, chapter 27, verses 15 to 17, and 20 to 23. Of course, most of you know that in the bulletin is is an insert with my title, my text, and the sermon outline for your easy reference. Now, if I may, as I usually do, I'm seeking the touch of God in this message. Psalm 1914 is my prayer. Dear Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus is making a triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. It is a remarkable event that is recorded by all four Gospels. And it is quite unlike anything else recorded about the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. You see, up until this time, Jesus has been withdrawing himself as much as possible from public notice. He often retired to the wilderness. He did not court attention. He avoided anything that hinted of public display. Listen to some of the things that the Bible says. In Matthew 12, it says that he did not cry nor strive nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. In Matthew 16, he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. And when he raised from the dead the daughter of Jairus, it says in Mark 5 that he straightly charged them that no man should know of it. And when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark 9.9 states, He gave orders to his disciples that they should tell no man what things they had seen until the Son of Man was risen from the dead. And in John 6, with the feeding of the 5,000, the Bible says, When Jesus therefore perceived that they, the multitude, would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when his half-brothers urged him to disclose himself to the world, he answered, it is not yet my time. But here, in our text, we see Jesus making a public entry into Jerusalem. And there is a huge crowd of people who have come out to welcome Jesus. And in John 12, 19, the Pharisees say, behold, the world has gone after him. Now Jesus is in complete charge He takes the initiative at every point. He knows that his time has come. And as he enters into the city of Jerusalem to face the issue of his death, 
he enters Jerusalem as the grand marshal of the Passover parade. So let us first consider the celebration of the adoring crowd. When Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, they gave him a royal welcome. And in our text, you can read that we are told that there was a very great multitude that were present that day for Jesus. And so we note first the Passover of the people. Now, why was there such a great multitude in Jerusalem? It was the time of Passover. It was time for Jesus to make his move. And by making the details provided by the other three Gospels, I can now paint a picture for you as we arrive upon the scene in Matthew 21. Jesus has left Bethany. It's morning. It is Sunday morning. And he begins to approach Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. See, the disciples have secured this donkey for him. And upon this animal, Jesus is beginning to descend the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And he was not alone, however. With him was a whole multitude of people from Bethany. Each year, when the people came to Jerusalem for Passover, they overflowed the city. And so they stayed in the surrounding towns and villages. And Bethany was one of them. So there is a crowd in Bethany. They have just witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. And because of that miracle, Jesus is the center of attention. So when Jesus leaves Bethany and starts toward Jerusalem, this mob of people who were in Bethany come with him. The other Gospels tell us that they were throwing the robes and palm branches in front of the little donkey in some kind of procession. So here comes this mass of people who have found that Jesus completely captivates their interest and their attention. And as this crowd moves toward the city of Jerusalem, something interesting happens. The mob from, of the people from Bethany were joined by another mob that comes surging out of the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. This is the second multitude. And like two great tides flowing together to make one sea, a mass of humanity now surrounds Jesus. And all of them are waving branches and crying out. And Jesus is descending the little mountain, crossing the brook, and entering the city. Now as you think about the people of the Passover, I will refer you to a census that was taken in Jerusalem during the time of one of the Passover celebrations. And in that that census, the the number of lambs slain at the Passover feast was 256,500. That's a lot of lambs. Over one quarter million lambs slain at Passover. Now the law of Passover said that there had to be a minimum of 10 people per lamb, which would add to the population of Jerusalem to around 2,600,000 Jews by conservative estimates. That is a massive amount of people. And so tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of people are hailing Jesus. Now, having considered the Passover of the people, let us consider the prayers of the people. And because of all the miracles Jesus had performed, particularly because of the raising of Lazarus, the people were beginning to think of Jesus as a conqueror. And so they grabbed palm branches, which have always been the sign of a conqueror, and they immediately begin to think of Jesus as the one who may save the nation. 
But they're not hailing him as a spiritual Messiah, but as a political savior, a political deliverer. Now the spirit of Passover was the spirit of being freed from from oppression. It was freedom from oppression of their enemies because Passover celebrated God's delivering the children of Israel from the captivity of Egypt. But now people were ready for another deliverer. They wanted someone to lead them in a liberation fight against the Romans. And when the people heard what Jesus had done to Lazarus, they thought, boy, here he is. He is the man. And so notice what they cry. It is the word Hosanna. The word Hosanna means save now. It is not so much a praise as a prayer. They were saying, oh, Jesus, great conqueror, king of Israel, save now. They're not talking about spiritual salvation. They're talking about political revolution. They were voicing a prayer, but it was selfish. You see, prayers should be the line that connects us with heavenly power. We have the glorious privilege of walking into the very throne room of the universe And because of the blood of Jesus, we can bodily let our requests be made known at that throne. And God works mightily in response to prayers. Let me tell you, the church's prayer life is a boiler room. The church's prayer life is a generator. It is the source of its power. And it is not meant for selfish reasons or purposes. But the people in our text are crying, Hosanna. And they are pleading, save now, save now. But it was a selfish prayer at best. Now we've considered the Passover of the people and the prayer of the people. I want us to think for a moment about the praise of the people. The Bible says that they said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Of course, they are praising Jesus as the conqueror. You know, it probably hasn't even occurred to them that he's not entering Jerusalem on a white charger. He comes in clumpity, 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 clump on a tiny little colt of a donkey. But the people were thinking that soon trumpets would sound and an army would be mobilized and Rome would be driven from the land. And so their praise was a sort of vain, misdirected kind of thing. And listen... When I talk about praising or worshiping God, I'm not talking about primarily being a cheerleader for God. I'm not talking about some kind of a physical demonstration that will indicate that you are on some kind of emotional high in worship. I like this definition. Praise is the worship of the heart that beats with ever-increasing devotion and loyalty to God. Praise is an attitude. You can praise God by the way you live. You can praise God by the way you pray. You can praise God by the way you give. You can praise God by the way you witness. You can praise God by the way you work. And by the way, as Jesus was coming into the city of Jerusalem, And the people were voicing their praise. Some of the Pharisees called to Jesus from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 19.40? He said, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Listen, 
The Lord is going to get praise whether he gets it from you or not. The Bible says that we sang Isaiah 55, 12. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into shouts of joy, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. You see, the Lord is going to get praise. And if he doesn't get it from animate objects like us, he will get it from inanimate objects. But the Bible says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let me give you some medicinal advice. Try praising the Lord. It will make him real in your life. It will bring you joy. It is a beautiful antidote for anxiety and fear. Praising God for blessings extends him. And praising God for troubles ends them. Try praise. Now we consider the Passover of the people and the prayers of the people and the praise of the people. Let us consider the problem of the people. You see, there was a problem. And the problem was that the crowd was fickle. They were interested in a political leader, not a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus knew their hearts. And in verse 8 of our text, we are told that a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, now they were shouting, hail him, hail him, hail him. But Jesus knew that in less than five days they would be shouting, nail him, nail him, nail him. And every time somebody said, Hosanna, it must have hurt Jesus because he knew their intent was political and selfish. He knew that soon they would be crying, away with him, away with him. We don't want this man to rule over us. It was a fickle crowd. And in the parallel passage in Luke 19.41, we are told that when Jesus came near to the city, he beheld the city and wept over it. You see, I, I believe Jesus weeps over our fickleness and our faithlessness today. I believe Jesus weeps when he hears our hosannas, but sees our hypocrisy. Let me ask you men something. How long has it been since you wept? A long time? All right, another question. Do you think Jesus was any less of a man than you are? I think he was a man's man, and yet he wept. Weeping is not necessarily a sign of weakness. In fact, in the Bible, it is a sign of compassion, of concern, of caring. And if Jesus were here physically this morning, he would weep over the spiritual condition of many of us. Every time you curse, every time you, you tell a lie, every time you young kids cheat in school, every time you get puffed up with pride, every time you lose your temper, every time you let the opportunity to witness go by, Jesus weeps over you. And that is one reason that we have to be out and out for Jesus. That's one reason. We ought not to be hypocrites. And the problem in our text is that the crowd was fickle. They were hypocrites. They were shouting, crown him on one day and crucify him the next. This was the problem. Listen to the crowd five days later. Listen to the choice of an angry crowd. In Matthew 27, the same crowd is gathered five days later. And it is a schizophrenic crowd. Their attitude is different. Their outlook is different. 
And as we look at this crowd five days later, the first thing I want us to notice is the custom of the Jews. In verse 15, we're told that at this feast, the governor was persuaded to release to the people one prisoner, the prisoner of their choice. Now, do you know why they had this custom at this particular festival, the festival of the Passover? Because the Passover was celebrated to commemorate the deliverance of Israel from the slavery of Egypt. So every year at the feast of the Passover, one prisoner was released from captivity just to remind the people that there was a time when God delivered their forefathers from the captivity of Egypt. And so it was the custom of the Jewish leaders to arrange the release of one prisoner during the feast of the Passover But I want us to also consider not only the custom of the Jews, I want us to consider the compromise of Pilate. One of the strangest pictures in history is the impression that Jesus made on this hard-hearted Roman governor. Although Jesus was dressed in the robes of mockery, And although he was crowned with a crown of thorns, and although the blood was streaming down his face, Pilate was captivated by the presence of Jesus. Pilate's effort to get out of crucifying Jesus is a pitiful story. He did not want to do it. He carried his appeal from the Jewish rulers to Herod, and then he went from Herod back to the Jewish leaders, and then he went from the Jewish rulers to the multitudes. And when the multitudes turned against Jesus, Pilate tried to appeal to their pity by having Jesus scourged. He hoped that they would be satisfied with a partial punishment and not require him to go all the way to crucifixion. But Pilate was weak. He had no backbone. In verse 17, we see him saying to the crowd, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas? A very sadistic killer? Or Jesus, the teacher, the miracle worker who is called Christ. I can see the priests and the elders moving in among the people, urging them to call for the release of Barabbas and for the death of Jesus. So the crowd cried out, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. What would you have done? if he had been in that crowd that day. In one of his books, Bailey Smith tells about a college play that he saw on an occasion. Allow me to share two scenes from that play. When the curtain opens, there was the scene of a home in Jerusalem around the time of Christ. One could see a mother and the father. The man happened to be a carpenter. The woman was talking to her husband. The woman said, Honey, I heard at the market today that the Roman government is advertising for carpenters to make crosses that they use for execution. Honey, you know that we've been needing extra spending money. I know you've been making cabinets and these chairs, but you can start making crosses that earn us some extra money. And he replied, No, dear. I love my work, and I love to help people to have cabinets and stools and chairs, but I don't make crosses. Then her pleading turned to nagging. Well, I don't have enough spending money. All of a sudden, the scene fades. 
and the curtain reopens again to another scene several weeks later. And coming into the same house, the little boy was crying, Mom, Dad, Mom, Dad, what is wrong, son? Oh, Mom, oh, Dad, son, what is wrong? Control yourself. Mom, Dad, I was at the market. And coming down the street, I saw a big crowd. I came over there and I saw Jesus. Well, son, do you mean the Jesus that we have loved? The Jesus that we've always thought was a good man who who taught good things? Yes, yes. That man, Jesus, I saw him. And Daddy, he was carrying our cross, a cross that we made here in our shop. We made the cross that Jesus was carrying. They're going to kill Jesus on our cross. Oh, Daddy, it's our cross. No, son, there are other people who have been making crosses. That probably was not our cross. It was our cross. It was our cross. Daddy, do you remember when that man came by and wanted you to build cabinets? Yes, son, I remember. Do you remember when you and the man started talking in the living room? Yes, son, I remember. Daddy, that day I went out into the shop where we had left that cross we had just finished. I looked at that cross that we made, and Daddy, I did what so many famous people do. I put my name on it. I did not tell you that I wrote my name on that cross Daddy, I was in that great crowd of people today. I saw Jesus coming by. And just when Jesus got even with me, he fell. And the cross had made a crush that we made crushed his shoulders. Daddy, I know it was our cross. Because when Jesus fell at my feet, I looked on that cross. And there was my name. The boy straightened himself up and said, Daddy, do you understand what I'm saying? My name was on that cross. Listen. Your name and my name were on that cross. Were you there when they crucified our Lord? Yes, you were there. And I was there. We were among those who cried, crown him. And we were among those who cried, crucify him. We were among those who cried, hail him. And we were among those who cried, nail him. And we helped fashion the cross upon which Jesus Christ died. Our name was on that cross. But we can thank God for it. Because he took the cross that was meant for us. He took the crown of thorns that was meant for us. He took the nails that was meant for us. He took the death that was meant for us. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen. I'm going to ask the praise team to again take the platform, if they're still here. You know, the Bible instructs us that we should sing for joy. Isaiah 55, 12, we've read it already, states, For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Friends, we're going to sing that song. But as we sing, let our focus be on the fact that we want to have our praises heard.
We want to be the ones that are lifting Jesus before the world. We want to be the ones that acclaim him, who praise him and worship him. Let us not falter, let us not stop to the, to the point that the trees have to take our spot. The, the stones have to be lifted up to take our spot. Because if we don't, they will. Stand if you're able.